Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us today. That, that was a little weird. That was really weird. You always start. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess we'll just roll with it. Yeah. You know, I, maybe we're out of sorts because you've been on vacation. I have been. Uh, we just spent a little bit of time in Arizona and Colorado and it was warmer than here. It wasn't awesome yet. Yeah. But, but you did. You just had a great, I mean, it was a road trip. You were camping. Oh, baseball. Baseball. Yeah. It's Cactus League baseball. It was fantastic. Well, I mean, I, and I'm pretty excited because three weeks from today, I'm going to be on a plane to Texas and just for a little bit of vacation. And, and I really, I can't wait. It's, it's, it's way past time. But I also get to check out the lay of the land in the southwestern United States as well, because we're getting ready for our big sandbox cooperative road trip. That's true. We're actually going to be in, in uh, that area coming up. Uh, we'll be flying probably to Colorado and then spend a little bit of time there talking with some people that are doing great things and hearing their stories. We're going to spend a little bit of time in uh, New Mexico, in Albuquerque, and connect with Richard Roar. And then we'll be heading over to Texas. Texas. Yeah, we're going to be at the ELCA National Youth Gathering in Houston, where, was it like 35,000 high school students? It's nuts. 35,000 high school students, the, the adult leaders that accompany them, and they're all going to be sitting in our sandbox with us. <laughs> That, that is like one gigantic sandbox. If you're going to be there, we've got plans for like actual sandboxes and make plans, but you you might not even fit a human in there, but let's try. We'll, I'll sit in there. <laughs> I'll sit in there. And, and actually we're going to be, you know, we're going to be having sandbox contests, sandcastle contests and all kinds of things. This is going to be yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Lots of, great, to it. lots of great ways to connect. So if you are someone who's planning on being there, uh, or maybe if, even if you're another organization that's going to have a presence there, we'd love to see you there and connect with you. So Absolutely. Uh, but for today's episode, we're really excited to share this conversation that we had uh, a little while ago with Melissa Rogers. Uh, Melissa recently served as special assistant to the president and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. That's a whole lot of words. That's but a lot of words, big words even. Pretty much. She was one of the advisors uh, to President Obama uh, during the previous administration and uh, did some great work with, with faith-based work. Um, she also served as executive director of the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life and is kind of an expert on all things like the First Amendment's religion clauses, religion and American public life, and the interplay of religion, policy, and politics. That was impressive what you just said. <laughs> And she's an impressive person. And we wanted to meet up with her in person when we were out east last summer. But our schedules, they just didn't match up. So we caught up to with her on the phone a few months back and had a great conversation about religion and politics. Yes, it is actually possible to do to have a great conversation with religion and politics. But more than that, it's probably more important than ever to have conversations like these as we seek to build stronger, more connected communities. So for now, we want to welcome you to Sandbox Cooperative, Episode 60, Faith and the White House with Melissa Rogers. All right. Well, we just want to welcome Melissa Rogers to the Sandbox Cooperative podcast. Thanks, Melissa, for, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. Yeah. So we just want to quick for, for people who aren't familiar with uh, maybe your background and your work, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your story, uh, maybe your fa faith background, as that as that makes sense, and just kind of a quick intro to, to who you are and what you've been up to the last few years. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I grew up in a home uh, that uh, was associated with Baptist. Uh, my dad was a Baptist minister, 
And so I grew up in the Baptist church and very much a part of religious institutions. So, you know, religion has been there for the beginning for me, and it's always been a part of my life. Uh, so, you know, that, that certainly laid some groundwork for my interest in these issues, and um, I'm very, very uh, proud to be a lifelong Baptist. Um, at the same time, from an early age, I was also interested in law, policy, and politics. And, and for a long time, I didn't think there would be any way for me to combine my interests <laughs> in faith and, and politics and law mm-hmm. yeah. and policy. Um, and indeed, when I went to law school, I, uh, I thought, well, I'm not sure where I'll end up doing. I had to go to a big law firm after law school to you know, pay back some, some school debt. Well, you had um, debt? But since, uh, <laughs> you're totally unfamiliar with that. Yeah, I don't know what you speak <laughs> of. Um, yeah. So, but then I found over time that, you know, I saw that some lawyers were doing religious liberty work, um, interpreting the religion clauses of the First Amendment, for example. And I thought, hmm, that looks really interesting. And I ended up doing some pro bono work from, for an organization called the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty while I was still at the law firm. And then when a position opened up there, they hired me to come serve as an attorney at the Baptist Joint Committee, which was my first real opportunity to combine these two great interests and loves in my life. Um, and so I've, I'm always terribly grateful to the Baptist Joint Committee for giving me that you know, that foothold. And uh, so I worked there for a number of years uh, doing writing amicus briefs. Those are friend of the court briefs for the Supreme Court in First Amendment cases that involved some aspect of the relationship between religion and government and also interacting with members of Congress on those issues and and uh, presidents and their administrations. And then um, was... Uh, was became friends with uh, E.J. Dion, who's uh, a, a Catholic uh, and a, a writer for the Washington Post and also works at the Brookings Institution, who also has a great interest in faith and public life. And he uh, hired me over to run a project that uh, was known at the time as the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life uh, that looks at issues of obviously uh, faith and public life. And, and uh, that was a the great project that was um, supported by the Pew Charitable Trust. Um, and then um, it was uh, as part of that work, and then thereafter, I, I went over to Wake Forest University Divinity School and the Brookings Institution to work with E.J. Samore and also to work separately at Wake Forest University Divinity School to try to help ministers prepare to think about issues of religion and public life. Because one of the things that I realized was that, you know, ministers in their normal training at seminaries are not necessarily ever asked to think about what they'll do mm-hmm. when, you know, issues, of, uh, whether it's a, a, a local ordinance that, you know, has to do with zoning that affects their church, or whether it's some ballot measure that's hot in their community, or whether it's when they're preaching a sermon and thinking about talking about public issues, how they, how they manage and navigate mm-hmm. their way through that. I realized that, you know, seminarians don't often have that training. So I went there to work on that, and that was a great experience. And then in, somewhere in those years, I became uh, acquainted with then-Senator Obama and his staff, 
and started talking to them about religion and public life issues. And then um, in the uh, the 2008 campaign, E.J., Dion, and I co-wrote a paper for um, the incoming administration. We wrote it before the election, uh, you know, not knowing who would take the White House. But we wrote a paper about what the incoming administration should do with uh, what was then known as President Bush's faith-based initiative. Mm-hmm. And so uh, President Obama then won the election, and then we gave the paper to his, um, to him and his staff, and then that ended up leading to uh, him appointing me to serve as chair of an advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Uh, and I thought, and that was a great experience, very diverse set of faith and community leaders working on a variety of public issues, including climate change and um, poverty, you know, various poverty issues, domestic and international, as well as some church state issues. And uh, we came to a set of recommendations that we made to the president, many of which he embraced. And I thought at that point, okay, that's the closest I'll ever come (laughs) to working in government. Um, And that was a great experience. Uh, But then to my surprise, uh, my predecessor, Joshua Dubois, called me um, in, uh, I guess it was, the winter of 2012 and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I made a decision to leave. I'm going to get married and do some other things. And, and we think you ought to take this job. And Hmm. I was quite surprised by that. (laughs) Uh, I never expected that to happen. Um, And I, I had never worked in government. I had never worked in a paid position on a campaign. And I just was uh, kind of taken aback by it and said, well, you know, I need to think about this a little bit. I really appreciate it. And I need to think about it. And then when I thought about it, I, I thought that, you know, I was just spending my whole uh, adult life sitting outside government, telling government what it ought to do. And mm. it would seem like a bit of a failure of courage when asked to go be a part of government and try to actually do those things, not <laughs> to do it. So I said yes. And, um, and indeed, that was a, the beginning of a really great, um, a great chapter in my life that was you know, equal parts honor and challenge every day. So that's a, that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking right before we called you that, that, uh, at some pro- at some point you got a phone call and it was from, yeah. And you were invited to do this job and yeah. what was your reaction in that moment? And we imagine there <laughs> had to be some high fives and some celebration dinners and stuff going on, but just and, and then Chris is like, yeah, that had to be terrifying. I'm like, but yeah, all good things are terrifying on some yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, it was mostly shock, <laughs> right. um, because I didn't, I did not. Although I knew Joshua Dubois, my predecessor, well, I did not know that he was planning to leave. So I had not ever, you know, contemplated a transition in that office. And and again, because I think most people who take positions in the White House have either worked in government or worked in a, you know, in a paid position in a campaign, I just wasn't, I did not conceive of myself as someone Hmm. who ever might be approached to work in the White House. And um, so it was mostly shock. And I, uh, of course, it was, it was a great honor as well. Um, And certainly, when you're, you know, when you're asked to, to do something like this, um, you, you, your motivation is to find a way to say yes, because, right. uh, first of all, you know, 
if you if you get if you are asked, then that that's a serious thing. People have taken that very seriously, and you want to try to be of service to people who think you can be useful. Um, inc- you know, including the president. If he thinks that I can be useful to him, then I want to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then of course, uh, you know, what a, an amazing experience to be part of. A, a presidential administration and to serve your country. That's just a, a one for most people, once in a lifetime opportunity. So I definitely wanted to say yes, but I was just, um, you know, hung up a little bit on the fact <laughs> that I was coming in with such a different background than many people um, who would serve in the white house. And I wanted to make sure that I felt that I could do the work um, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, certainly that was <laughs> first and foremost in my mind. And, um, you know, it took a little while, a little thought, but ultimately, you know, of course I said yes. And, and, and I'm so glad I did. I, I think that I did have a very, very steep learning curve when I got there. Um, and I remember people telling me at the time, even people who had worked in government, or in campaigns before, they said, when you get to the White House, it'll take you at least nine months to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear Lord, please don't <laughs> let it take that long. And, and you know, I think it really did. It, it, I mean, it's not like you learn every day. Every day you learn things, and it gets better and better. But it does take a certain, you know, period of months um, before you feel um, you know, sort of competent to be functioning in all the different ways that you need to function. And indeed, I would say I worked there four years, and I would say that it was every day and every year I felt like, wow, I've learned so much this year. And my fourth year, I was just so wishing that I had known what I what I knew mm-hmm. in year four and mm-hmm. year one, um, because there's just uh, it's a big fire hose to drink out of. <laughs> So what was the impact, so what was the impact of your work? I mean, you know, you were you were there and you were working in in this office and leading this office. Uh, where did you feel uh, your influence? Well, I think that you know, there's several different ways to think about that. Um, I feel like by first of all, by partnering with faith and community groups on a variety of issues, we had a big impact together. Not mm. the government alone. Um, not faith communities alone, although we each had, you know, our impacts in other areas. But when we worked together, there was a good that we could realize um, in that partnership that we could have never realized alone. So, you know, I can give just tons of examples, but um, one example I can give you is about fighting the Ebola disease. Um, You you know, you probably remember uh, when that a disease emerged and how mm-hmm. scary it yeah. was uh, for everyone that was confronting him. It was new. It was terrifying. It was urgent. And, um, you know, we had to, we had to get every, all hands on deck to fight that disease. And, um, one of the things I remember is, uh, you know, the president and the chief of staff were, were keenly aware that we needed the military, we needed the government, we needed diplomats, we needed all these people at the table, medical people at the table to fight this dread disease. What they also, to their great credit, realized is that we needed the faith community and, and other humanitarian groups engaged as well. And so, you know, right away when this hit, we had uh, group meetings with 
faith and humanitarian groups and, and, and others to say, okay, what do you know about this disease? Um, what are you doing um, to treat it? Uh, what, how can the federal government provide resources in the treatment and education of communities, both in the United, the United States and in West Africa on these issues? And um, how can, and then as time went on, you know, how can we deal with misinformation about the Ebola virus and the stigma attached to Ebola survivors? So, you know, we worked together and um, beat that back in a way that, you know, I, I will always feel very proud of. Mm. Um, and uh, we could not have done it without the faith and humanitarian groups playing a leading role. Uh, so that's just one example mm. of some of the impact of the work that we did. One of the things that you said a little earlier was just really interesting to me about uh, the way that you kind of talked about needing both uh, government and faith organizations uh, to, to come together to actually right. accomplish the whole thing. And obviously in that role, you're sitting a little bit in the middle of it. Uh, and I imagine there's a little bit of tension there. Um, but I'm also curious, how do you see the role of the how do you see the role of the government and how do you see the role of the church and, and maybe the interesting part, where did you see them coming together uh, in a way that right. they can't do on their own? Right. So the church's role is, is clearly different than the government's. Um, I mean, if we're the role of the Christian church is to share the love of Christ with all people and the role of the government, um, just to quote the constitution is to do things like establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense and general welfare and secure blessings of liberty for everyone. So, you know, there are obviously some clear differences, and it's important that we understand those differences and not get the two confused. Um, but at the same time, there are areas of overlap. And the way I like to think about it, to put it simply, is that, you know, church and state by virtue of our constitutional order, are independent in some meaningful ways from one another. And it's important when, and I certainly experienced this and tried to practice it when I was in government, to try to show respect for the independent role of, of faith in the United States. So it is never, for example, the government's role to instruct the faith community to do X, Y, or Z. We can invite the faith community to consider working with us on Ebola or um, some kind of, you know, health issue or education issue. We can extend an invitation and then we can see what kind of response we get. And, you know, more often than not, the response was, of course, we can collaborate here. Here's, here are some ideas. Here's some ways we can collaborate. And then a two-way conversation happened where we found that sweet spot where the mission of the church and the mission of the government overlapped, although both retained their independence in the working relationship and the kind of respect that was due. So, you know, I think it's very important that whenever the government is working with religious communities and religious leaders, that there's that healthy respect for that independent role of religion. Um, and that uh, we never uh, try to, you know, make religion a creature of the state, because if we do that, 
um, it's not only wrong for all kinds of reasons, but it ends up robbing religion of its prophetic power and witness. So the very thing that caused us to reach out to the faith community in the first place, because we know that the faith community has incredible dedication and resources and respect. And so we're doing a disservice to everyone when we, if we would ever try to, to make religion subservient or a creature of the state, and instead we should really respect its independence. You know, uh, I've been thinking about uh, what you're talking about, religion. You're talking about religion and politics, and those are two of the things that you never talk about mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> and that's your work. That's your work. Uh, so clear, clearly you have lots of critics uh, and, and people who would critique the work that you're about. Um, could you say more about that? Sure. Sure, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I'm a big supporter of the First Amendment in all respects. So we uh, certainly welcome people to have their views and to express them. Um, so, yeah, people should uh, be engaged in the, in the discussion. I think that um, you're, you're right that um, these issues at intersections of faith and government can be sensitive and we need to be careful about them. And, um, and we need to hear from people who think that we've struck the wrong balance. Um, but I think that having said that, what is often obscured is that there's a lot of room of agreement here. I mean, every day when I was at the white house, you know, there may have been some, some group that disagreed with um, aspects of what President Obama was doing, but they were right at the table working with us on comprehensive immigration reform or serving hungry children meals in the summer or working against Ebola and Zika or working to resettle refugees. So something that's not always well understood is that while there are, I think, I think probably disagreements between you know, presidential administrations and religious communities um, frequently, usually that doesn't mean that um, there's not also common ground and there's not also a lot of um, fruitful collaboration. And that was certainly true of my experience. And what we tried to do is, you know, to really engage people in that collaboration and to say, you know, just because you disagree with us on one thing, we want it. That doesn't mean that we don't want you at the table for this other thing. If you want to join us, we want you there. And one of the things that did was um, obviously it helped us pursue what we all thought was a worthy goal, um, whether it was, you know, um, hunger or healthcare or whatever. Um, But it also decreased the polarization because, you know, it's hard to, treat somebody like they're evil if you have sat down at the table with them and worked on some common goal. Mm -hmm. And then it also, I think, helped us to begin to see more nuance in our disagreements and helped us to uh, find more common ground even on the areas of disagreement. Because when we were working with someone on an issue like refugee resettlement where where we agreed, then, you know, the next time when they came in and we always you know, we always made the effort to say, look, we know that you disagree with us about this other issue. Please come in and talk to us about that, too. Then there was a relationship there. There were some um, ability to talk that was better than it would have been if we hadn't had, you know, the common working relationship. And that's not to say that we came to complete agreement on many of the divisive issues. We didn't most of the time, but, but we were able to make more progress. Mm-hmm. Um, than we would have otherwise. So 
I think that that's, you know, that's a really important dynamic and one that, you know, every administration ought to ought to seek to follow. So I think we're at a point right now where we kind of are feeling a lot of that ability to work together has just kind of been ripped apart. Um, and I think any progress that we made feels like still feels like a little bit of a challenge now. And really, I think the key, which is different from what you were saying as your experience in, in this position is, is we really don't seem to be able to listen to one another right now. Um, and mm-hmm. so how do you find motivation to continue to your work in the midst of that, in the midst of that political climate that we're facing right now? Yeah. So, you know, I continue to find intellectually honest and compassionate people in both political parties and on different sides of some legitimately tough issues. And, you know, I have my own views, but of course, but I'm also really inspired by and continue to be inspired by the courage and thoughtfulness and compassion that's being shown of people of different political persuasions today. And I I continue to enjoy seeking and especially finding common ground and building bridges. So I don't think that work has stopped. It has changed. Um, It looks different. And we're trying to figure out how to move it forward. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, you know, it it continues in some important ways. Not front page news most of the time, but still happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, that's not to say I, I quite... Uh, agree that there is a level of polarization today that's worse than what I've seen in my lifetime um, and is, you know, terribly frustrating. Um, You know, I think that we have got to find a way to to get beyond this um, and to not dismiss or ignore each other's concerns, but find a way to you know, dignify each other's concerns and listen to one another. So, you know, the only thing, you know, or I shouldn't say the only thing, but I would say that some of the main things that I try to do to be responsive to it is just to continually seek out, you know, people who I think you can, you know, you really have a good conversation with, even if you're on different sides of tough issues. And, do that work, you know, I used to do that work as part of my government work, and now I'm no longer in government, so I'm doing it in the private sector. And I think that, you know, that work will continue, and hopefully we'll find some ways to to bridge some really important gaps by just keeping our noses to the grindstone. What kind of advice would you give to someone who is uh, trying to lead maybe in their local community, whether that's uh, maybe they've got a religious background, maybe they don't, but um, particularly just realizing maybe some of the division that we face today. Um, someone who's trying to be a leader, someone who's trying to bring people together, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, so, you know, I think that um, it's, first of all, I applaud anyone who's trying to do this work. I think it's uh, great. And I think that um, reaching out to people of different views, not being scared of people, not, you know, getting... Um, isolated in our own little information bubbles uh, is very important. Reaching out to people who are different religiously, ideologically, politically is, 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 makes, is terribly important. It makes a big difference. And work at the local level, I think, can just be so transformative. Um, and I saw that, you know, when I was working at the White House, when I would hear about what some 
group of leaders did in a community that truly changed their community. Um, so people should never forget the power that they have to um, to be forces for good. I think when they're working in the roles of if they're if they're working where religion is an explicit part of what they're doing, religion and public life issues, I think it's important, as I said earlier, to recognize that the roles of religion and government are different, um, but they can interact in some constructive ways. And I think it's very important not to buy into misconceptions about the religion, the relationship between church and state and religion and politics. Um, you know, uh, you just mentioned one of them earlier about we can't talk about religion and politics. And <laughs> I know that, you know, there's sometimes it's not the best idea, but I think sometimes we just got to do it. And um, so how do we do it? Hmm. You know, how hmm. do we do that? How do we yep. bridge across those deep differences? And, you know, the, some people will misunderstand um, the separation of church and state. Now, I count myself as a big supporter of the separation of church and state, but that doesn't mean that religion and government can't talk to one another and can't um, cooperate where they choose to do so. It also, you know, we hear lots of crazy rumors, um, you know, in, in, the, in just the news, some sorts of news streams about what the government is going to do to religious people. Um, for example, that are just not true. And so I think people need to be um, take it upon themselves to make sure that they have correct information about um, religion and government, to study the Constitution, um, to understand, you know, what our basic charter is uh, as American citizens and, and all that that entails. Um, and not be lazy and just accept what we've heard from, you know, our friends or mm -hmm. um, someone who may not have given much thought to it or may not have tried to interrogate an issue um, to get to the truth. And I think the, you know, very important thing right now is, and always, is to defend the equal citizenship of all people, no matter their faith or lack thereof. That's a very key part of the Constitution. It's also, I would say, you know, a key part of my religious beliefs as a Baptist that we, we need to protect uh, the freedom of everyone to respond to their conscience in a way that's authentic and voluntary without governmental pressure or coercion. So we need to respect the right of each person in each community um, to worship or, or not as they see fit to be able to, you know, express their faith without fear. Um, and so, you know, coming for, if you are in the majority in a community, be looking for those who are in the minority because part of being an American is going to bat for the people who are in the minority and their basic rights and, and making sure whether you agree with them or not, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. beside the point, is to defend their First Amendment rights. And that that I think will be, um, a key part of moving our nation forward. And then, of course, I would say just, you know, to, to show love and kindness toward all that you encounter. Um, there's too little of that in the world today. Uh, it makes, it's a kind of counterculture experience in many contexts mm -hmm. to actually um, reach out to somebody with kindness and form a relationship, and it can change um, so much when we do that. And I know that sounds very simple um, and perhaps, you know, uh, would sound too Pollyannish to mm -hmm. some, but I've just seen that, you know, that dynamic and happened so many times where people um, were surprised by the kindness of others and it changed a situation for the better. 
So those are just a few suggestions that I'd make. The root word for politics comes from the Greek polis, which means city or community. It's also related to the word for citizen. At its very core, politics is how we structure our lives and community together. Now, the word for church in Greek is ekklesia. It's a collective community of Christian believers. Church and politics, at their core, they are both all about community. And yet the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning, and the most divisive topic of conversation is usually politics. And I think that's why I kept hearing Melissa repeating the word relationship over and over again. She kept coming back to the question, how are we in relationship with one another? I mean, it's so basic, it's embarrassing, but it's also so important and neglected that we have to say it. How are we in relationship with our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers? Sometimes it seems easier to come up with reasons not to be in relationship. We are so fragmented. Think about the divisions between rich and poor, Republicans and Democrats, evangelical Christians and progressive Christians. We segment off into our respective corners and we defend our turf at all costs. I hear Melissa saying, out of a desire for the common good, to care for those who are aching, to heal those who are sick, to welcome those who are outcast, to build stronger, more connected, more welcoming community, we need to take the simple but bold step of risking relationship. I really believe that most people truly want to see a healthier world, a more abundant life for all people, a more just society, a world where dignity and justice are basic human rights. Politics and church, polis and ecclesia, it's about community and our life together. In the divided, often contentious society that we live in, how might you be seeking to build relationship and reach out to someone new? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. To stay up to date with all of the things that are going on in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So let us know what you think about the podcast. And if you'd like, rate and review us on iTunes. Join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There is always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.